Our scripture this morning comes from the first book of Samuel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again, a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you for that reading, Sarah. Well, I was going to attempt to try to say something humorous at this moment, uh, but I have instantly uh, just now changed my mind. As I think about this morning, it was earlier today, even uh, during COVID, even when the pews are largely empty aside from staff, we still gather together before the worship service and we pray. And what I said to the staff while standing here earlier this morning is that I believe with all that I am, that what we're doing still is vastly important. The words of worship that we lead one another in, this matters. And so I just want to say, from all of us here, we are so, so deeply affirming of the reality that what we're doing as a community, the faith that we hold out to and with one another right now, it matters. And let me just say, from me and from everyone else, that we are so incredibly and seriously grateful that you are still joining us in this common work of faith, hope, and love during these seasons of exhaustion and trial and hardship in so many ways. We are deeply grateful for you, and we still have good work to do together. And with that, will you please join me in prayer? God, who sees all, who knows all, You love all creation, and it is your desire that all creation would know your goodness, that your good news would ring out in every place. And so now, in this moment, quiet our thoughts, still our hearts, that we might be able to hear you and see you. And after we have heard and after we have seen, may we know that there is work for us to do, that your good news is always going before us all. And so may these words and the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you, we pray. May these words not fall to the ground. May our words and our lives matter because they are faithful before you and neighbor. It's in Christ that we pray in thanksgiving always. Amen. I was recently reminded of an old story that tells of one soldier who, after returning from Vietnam, made a phone call from California to his home in Boston. The phone rang in Boston, and the son talked to his mother for the first time in a long time. The mother was so happy that her son was alive. After the initial greetings, the son said that he wanted to come home and that he wanted to bring a friend home with him. To this, his mother said, sure, we've got a big house. The son said, well, there's just one thing, mom. He doesn't have a right arm, any legs, and his face is completely scarred. Is that still okay? Story goes that there was a long pause before the mother said, I don't think so, son. It it sounds like that might be too much trouble on our hands. Click and The next morning, a second phone call was made from California to Boston. This time, it was the police regretfully calling to notify the family of their son's death. 
The policeman on the line said that evidently living without an arm, legs, and a disfigured face was too much for him to take. Click. Here's what I think we know to be true. Our words matter in immeasurable ways. How we respond changes the world, both in ways that are close and tangible, and often in ways that are distant and difficult to discern. I wonder, how would the measure of your life be different if you really believed that your replies, your choices, and your decisions carried real weight, more consequence, and social significance. Here's what I think we also know to be true. Saying the right thing at the right time usually isn't a matter of luck and sheer coincidence. Most of the time, Speaking with precision and care will require you first to listen, to hear, to process, and to think before you speak. Far too often we speak without knowing, caring, or contemplating the circumstances and consequences of our words. Far too often we are merely making noise and not listening to or responding to the situation at hand. Too much of the time, we are either thoughtless or reckless about our thinking, our listening, and our speaking. Today's reading from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3 is, in my view, extremely relevant. It almost seems laughably on the nose. What we find at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3 is a society brimming with political anxiety, frustration, and transitional leadership at the top. Let's set the scene. At this time in Israel's history, they are not governed by a king or president, but by prophets, priests, and judges. These men and women channeled a divine voice, speaking words to God and carrying God's words to the people. Sometimes in Scripture, the roles of prophet, priest, and judge are played by different actors, and sometimes all three functions are embodied by a single voice. We'll get there in a moment, but I'm convinced that the latter is the case for Samuel. In time, he will speak prophetically on God's behalf. He will lift up the voice of the people to God as a priest and he will be unwaveringly truthful in judging the people when the desires of their hearts are laced with selfishness, power, and greed. But we're not there yet. Our passage this morning tells of Samuel's start, of his boyhood call. Let me give you a warning before we even begin. It can be tempting to take this text as a mere childish portrait as if this account is a simple snapshot of young faith all dressed up, maybe even with a smart bow tie and adorable suspenders and polished loafers. But let's be clear, Samuel in this text is not a simple spectacle. He is growing up in a conflicted and troubled time. His mentor in the faith, Eli, is blind. 
Without question, there is a play in the text on the degree to which Eli's physical blindness is also indicative of a spiritual diminishment. You might recall that it was the responsibility of Eli as high to oversee the people of Israel during this time. But here, the overseer cannot see what's happening right before his eyes. Eli's sons, the seeming heirs to the priesthood, are using their father's status and privilege to skim for themselves. There is corruption within, and the reader is left questioning whether Eli's failure to say something is because he literally cannot see what's taking place or because he has grown to be spiritually unperceptive. The careful reader here must be attentive to open questions and a character analysis that defies simplicity. In the words of one of my seminary professors, Stephen Chapman, quote, The character of Eli is more fully nuanced. The main characters of biblical narrative are hardly ever portrayed in white hats and black hats as in classic cowboy movies. In that kind of movie, the good guys wear white and bad guys sport black, and the plot unfolds consistently according to the clear, acknowledged difference between the two. The good cowboys are all and the bad cowboys are all bad. But not so in biblical narrative. Eli's portrait conveys sympathy for him, even the judgment against him and his family manages to appear accurate and just. Chapman goes on to note that the narrative makes a point of expressing sympathy with someone who is at the same time the recipient of God's judgment. In returning to the story, we hear in this passage a divine voice breaking the silence. In verse 1, we read that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Whereas Eli's deterioration in his office as priest has resulted in the absence of a divine voice, here and now God will speak for God's self. Notice the adept literary craft. While Eli is blind and in the dark, Samuel sleeps in the lamplight. What we find is a glimmer of hope and light amid a season of escalating bleakness. In this, we find a subcurrent of truth that undergirds all of Scripture. No matter the chaos, the darkness, or the loss, the light of God will not be extinguished. The narrative reads something like a folktale or a fable. God speaks, and we watch as Samuel is repeatedly woken by a voice calling out his name. In Samuel's response, he must learn to tell the difference between a human voice and God's voice. Eli, finally realizing that God is speaking, instructs Samuel, If God calls on you again, tell the Lord you're listening. It's at this moment that we find a great paradox. Samuel is the person to whom God chooses to speak, but Samuel does not know what to say. 
Eli is the person to whom God does not choose to speak, but Eli knows what must be said. Eli instructs Samuel on how to respond to the divine call that he cannot hear for himself. Following Eli's advice, Samuel listens and responds rightly on the fourth occurrence. And in doing so, he then hears a word that must be repeated. The boy Samuel is tasked with relaying the message to Eli that the house of Israel cannot continue with a priesthood marked by apathy, abuse, and compromise. This is an incredible moment. A young boy must now speak truth to mature power. A small voice will have to speak up for a regime change at the highest level. It was earlier this week that I was a part of a Zoom call with bioethicist Carl Elliott, who's currently writing a book on whistleblowing within the medical community. At one point, Elliott noted that there are often real consequences to following your conscience and speaking up. He observed that those who see something and then say something that their life doesn't always go forward with ease. Being honorable often comes at a cost. The whistleblower is often the person who listens to a small, discomforting, but growing voice that says, that's not right, or this isn't okay, and people are being hurt as a result. And so here we find Samuel in the morning hours waiting for daybreak. God tells Samuel to pass on a message to Eli. Something's gone awry and afoul in Israel. Samuel is about to blow the whistle on a religious and political system that in the words of Walter Brueggemann has been characterized by threats, bargains, and cunning calculations. At morning's light, Samuel breaks the news to Eli that his household will no longer lead the people. It's the end of an era. The control must now shift. Remarkably in the text, Eli accepts this divine word from Samuel without defense or pushback. In verse 18, we read, So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Eli then responds, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This moment places us on the cusp of a new beginning for the people of God. In time, Samuel will grow into a role that will continue to require him to speak truthfully and prophetically to the people of Israel. In his classic Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel commented, quote, The words the prophet utters are not offered as souvenirs, end quote. Throughout Scripture, the prophetic voice was not a cheap trinket. They were not a talisman for good luck or a guarantee for a good future. The true prophetic voice could not be bought, haggled with, or suppressed. The prophetic voice was premised on pointing out God's heart for justice, peace, and hope without compromise or concession. Often we read of prophetic warnings They almost always go like this. If you keep going down that path, it's no wonder it will lead you to a terrible place. But let us not forget that much of the time, 
the prophetic voice tells the simple truth that is right in front of us, but that we refuse to hear. Do justice. Walk humbly. Don't fall for that temptation. Care for the widow, for the orphan, the stranger, and the oppressed. Later in Samuel's life, the people of Israel come to him, longing for a king to rule over them, just like all the other nations have at the top of their political regimes. In chapter 8, Samuel replies by saying that appointing a king will result in high taxation, military conscription, and arbitrary exploitation. He even speaks the dread word in Israel's lexicon. Samuel tells Israel that they will lose their freedoms and they will become slaves. In saying this, Samuel holds up Egypt as a reminder of how far they've come and of the dangers of going back to an enslaving reality. Interestingly, some scholars have suggested that Israel's eventual desire for a king occurred because some individuals had accumulated surplus wealth and needed a strong centralized government to protect and enhance that surplus. Samuel spoke, warned, and pleaded, but the people didn't want to listen. They chose to turn a deaf ear just as Eli had turned a blind eye. This is a side conversation taking place in the margins of 1 Samuel, and it's, it's all about Israel's experiment with monarchy. It would take until Israel goes into exile in Babylon to fully see the dangers of power that abused and used the people for selfish gain. Samuel foreshadows that kingship in the life of Israel will come at a high cost. Later in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 35, we read that even when they were in their own kingdom, they did not serve you. The monarchy will largely be a negative lesson for Israel. The New Testament artfully carries this conversation forward. Yes, Jesus is born with a kingly heritage that can be traced back to David. But make no mistake, Jesus will flip kingship on its head. It will not be used for selfish gain. Jesus will not be tempted to crave and feed power. Like Samuel, Jesus will utter God's word to the people without concession to the power brokers and the ruling structures of his time. One of the most memorable lines from today's passage comes in verse 11. When the Lord says to Samuel, do something Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. I'm actually partial to Robert Alter's translation at the end of this verse saying, ears will ring. I wonder, what would it mean for us to listen to God's dream for the world in such a way that ears would ring, that our head and heart tangible reverberations of divine hope. It seems fitting today to ask, how has the good news and justice of God been a jarring noise in your life? A feeling or a sound that you just can't shake. 
Today is the Sunday when churches throughout our country will say something to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice that rang out in the American landscape, dreaming for an end to violence, poverty, and racism. Dr. King's dream is written in the same tune as the dream we read about in our text today. We are prompted to consider whether we have the ears to hear a voice of spiritual renewal in a land marked by exploitation and blindness. We are left to consider if we dare to speak up for the justice of God, knowing that it very well may indict our complacencies and our complicities. Will we blow the whistle or will we turn a blind eye when God's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven? Will we even notice Will we say anything at all? It was just a week ago that I was texting with someone in the congregation about the task of teaching and preaching in a time of such great social division and animosity. This congregant replied by saying, What are ministers if not truth-sayers? In the best of ways, that line shook me. With today's text, I could say that it made both of my ears ring. What are we doing? What am I doing if not saying the truth? In its way, today's text reminds us that before we speak, we first need to listen. For some of you, the challenge of today's sermon might be found in listening to a voice that's been marginalized and pushed to the side for one reason or another. In doing so, you might hear something of God's dream for all people and all creation. I can't help but be struck by the image of Eli in a staid regime of authority, listening to the cracking voice of a boy who heard God calling out of the darkness. It's simply the case that we often have to take intentional actions if we're ever going to hear the unlikely voice that isn't from the ruling perspective. You've heard this wise counsel. You don't learn about the oppressed by listening to the oppressor. The fact is that we often need to go out of our way, to get out of our comfort zones, and to listen at length without leaning on our myopic assumptions and our inherited blind spots. I would venture to say that most of us need to speak less and listen more. And once we've done the real work of listening, we must then speak up with truth and courage. We also need to be committed to the long arc of divine justice and faithfulness. We must live with eyes that don't grow dim and ears that don't ignore roaring sounds of enduring hope and relentless love at work in our everyday lives. I wonder, do you hear the ringing? The silence is breaking. A divine voice is still calling. What remains to be seen is how you will respond.